0: Once again, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Uh, my name is Pastor Micah, and I uh, just want to say a, a great thanks to all you guests that are with us. Uh, we're glad that you're here. If we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We would really love to do that. So this is the point in our service where we get to continue worshiping the Lord through the study of his mighty word. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab that. If you need a Bible, there's some hardback black ones on the floor. Around your chairs, you can grab one of those and follow along there as well love for you to do that also. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Acts and looking at how do we stay on mission, walking with the Lord and continuing uh, to, to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfill the mission that he's given us. And Today we're going to see how we do that even when the mission is challenged, uh, which sometimes it inevitably is. Um, so you know uh, that the sibling relationship is a wonderful and yet complicated relationship. Can I get an amen from anybody with siblings in the house? Okay. Some of y'all, how many of you have siblings? Show me your hands. Yeah, okay, okay. So you only child people, you might not quite be with us on this, but I think if you just, I, think I can get you there, okay? Just stick with me. Here's, here's the deal. So I am the oldest in our family. I have two younger sisters, and I always kind of enjoyed that firstborn status. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, you kind of have... You know, the, you're older, you're, you're bigger, you're stronger, you, you are obviously wiser because you're older, right? So, like, you've got this thing going on. You've got, some, you've got a little bit more control over things most of the time. You've got um, some, some privileges that maybe the young kids don't always get. So it's, it's, a, it's a good place to be. I was really, that was, that was good for me. I liked that. Until the day that my younger sisters learned about the, the mommy trump card. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Let me me give you a little story here. Maybe this may help this kind of click. So let's just pretend like on a regular Saturday, I'd be down in the family room, you know, playing some classic NES Excite bike or something equally cool like that. And I'm sitting there playing my game and the girls would come down and they were like, we want to watch Barney. And I'm like, no, I'm busy playing a game. And they're like, but you've been playing for hours. I'm like, tough. I was here first. I'm bigger. I'm playing a game. You're going to have to wait. So at that point, they have basically three choices. They can either continue to argue and try to fight with Big Brother, hoping he's gonna give in, which they knew was not gonna happen. Or two, they could give up on their mission to watch TV and Barney and go do something else. Or three, they could pull the mommy trump card. If you don't let us watch, we're gonna go tell mom. And at that point, you know you, know you gotta to try to bluff them, right? So you're like, fine, go tell mom, I don't care, right? She, she's not gonna do anything. But that didn't last very long because pretty soon they they learned if they went and told mom, guess what was going to happen? In a couple minutes, I'd be off NES and Barney would be on the screen and all things would be back to normal. They knew that fighting, arguing with me was really not going to go anywhere. They couldn't win that battle. They weren't big enough. They weren't strong enough. They didn't have it in them. So they would go and they would appeal to the higher power, if you would, mom, to come in and fight that battle and win that for them right? That's our position as followers of Christ. There are oftentimes when we're on the mission with God, when we're following Christ, when we're doing what he's called us to do, we get into situations where we can't fight the battle. We can't win. We don't have the power, but God does. And so our job is to go to him and to trust in him and to wait on the Lord to come and fight the battles that we can't fight. So we're going to see that today in Saul and Barnabas as they step out into this brand new mission that God has called them to. That Satan is going to challenge it. He's going to attack. He's going to fight against what they're trying to do. And we're going to learn from how they respond to these attacks on their mission. So here's the main thought today. When Satan challenges the mission, commit yourself to the Lord. When Satan challenges the mission, which he will inevitably do, that is coming. Trust me. And when he does it, our job is to go back to the Lord, to commit ourselves to him, and to let him win the victory. Let me show you this in the text today. Look at verse 4 with me. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 4, starts off like this. So being, out, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and, uh, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and then it keeps going, but I'm going to pause there, which I know is kind of a weird place to pause, but it'll make sense in a second. So point number one, the first thing I want you to see here about Paul or Saul and Barnabas as they step out is that when Satan attacks subtly, walk faithfully. When Satan attacks subtly, walk faithfully. So it says in verse 4, it tells us that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. This connects back to what we studied last week in verse 3, where the Holy Spirit came to the church in Antioch and said, give me Saul and Barnabas, I'm going to send them out on a special mission, right? So now they're being sent out on that mission. And this was kind of reminiscent to me because they're they're going out on mission for God. It reminded me of when Jesus came of age and he was ready to begin his earthly mission. And it says that before he stepped into his, his earthly ministry, that he was sent out by the Holy Spirit into where? Anybody remember? Into the desert, right? He's sent out by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Why? To be tested, to be tried, to be challenged by Satan himself to prepare him for the ministry that was to come. And I think we see this regularly is anytime God starts a new mission, he sends us into a new thing. Oftentimes there will be challenges, there will be tests, there will be things that Satan comes against because Satan hates it when God's people get serious about walking on mission with Jesus. And he's going to challenge it, and he's going to attack it any way that he possibly can. And so we see that here with Saul and Barnabas. But it tells us, it kind of gives us a geography lesson here for a second. I was supposed to have a a laser pointer, and somebody gave me one, and I forgot it. So you're going to have to imagine that I have it. But So it it says he goes from from Antioch to Seleucia. So let's get that map up here, just kind of help you a little bit. So Antioch is up here in the left-hand corner. Just a short little jog down there to Seleucia. It was the nearest port city, all right? So they're trying to get to a ship so they can start sailing. And then they sail from Seleucia to the island of Cyprus. That's an island. That's a region here in the middle of the Mediterranean. They land at Salamis on the... My right, your right side there. Okay? That is the, the port city they John. Thank you, John. Look at this man, okay? How do I work this thing? Is it already going? Okay. Oh right, there we go, there we go. Alright, so so they, they they sail from Seleucia to Cyprus, landing here at Salamis, that port city, and they start preaching the gospel at Salamis, and then it says that they preach the gospel all the way across the island to Paphos. Okay? So they literally it took them probably multiple days, maybe even weeks, as they started preaching the gospel. Did I lose it? What happened to it? Okay. You guys, so, as they go from Salamis all the way over to Paphos, this would have been an intense, long part of their start to their mission and to their journey. Now, what is interesting to me in this text is it says that they proclaimed the word of God. So let me just kind of break that down for a second. Proclaimed there literally is the word that we would translate today as they preached. Right? They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of gospel ministry. We know that the Bible tells us that the power to save, the power to bring people to salvation is in the word of God. Right? That it's in the gospel. It's in the story and the person of who Jesus Christ is. It's not in the messenger. It's not in the person. It wasn't Saul and Barnabas who had some special power to save people. They were proclaiming the word of God, and that changes hearts and it changes lives. And as they did this, it says they started in the synagogues. So they started with the Jewish people. That's synagogues were where the Jewish people worshipped. And they started with the Jews because the idea is that they're, they're most primed for the gospel. Right? They already believe the Old Testament. They already believe in God. They already believe that a Messiah is coming. They believe in the authority of Scripture. And so, therefore, obviously, they're ready. So they start preaching to the Jews in the synagogues that Jesus Christ has come, that the Messiah has come, and that they can be saved. And it says, by the way, they had John to assist. them. that's John Mark that we heard about in the last part, right? That he's like the pastoral intern for this trip, right? Like he's kind of hanging around and learning ministry with them. So it says they've gone through the whole island, preaching and proclaiming the word of God that has the power of God to save. But interestingly enough, in the text, it doesn't tell us of one single convert, Everywhere else in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to a new city, to a new region, to a new place and starts preaching the gospel, there's always a record of so-and-so got saved, and so-and-so got saved, in this group, and this city, and this family. And, and right here, it doesn't say that anybody got saved. Now, do we know for sure that nobody got saved? No. But if we look at the pattern of the way Luke writes, that's a pretty good inference. So the very first leg of Saul and Barnabas' miss- missionary journey through the entire island of Cyprus, which is, by the way, Barnabas's like hometown. Right? like he grew up on Cyprus. Like he, these are his peeps. All right? so he he should have some connects. He should be able to do this. Like this should go well. They get there, and nobody's coming to Jesus. That would have been extremely frustrating. Right? Can you imagine? Put yourself in, in Saul and Barnabas. Like, God, you called us here. You told us to do this, and now we're here and we're preaching, and nothing's happening. It would've been frustrating. Maybe they started to to doubt. That did we hear God wrong? Did we did we mess something up? Maybe, maybe they're fearful that they are in the that they they did it wrong somehow, or that's the wrong place, or maybe there's some anger or some anxiety over like, well, it's, it must be your fault, Barnabas. What did you do this week? Why aren't you like, you need to get right with Jesus so that we can get some some stuff going here. Maybe they even thought about quitting at times. Obviously, this, is the thing, this whole thing isn't working. I think what we see at play here, the same thing that we see over and over again when somebody steps out on mission with Jesus, is that Satan oftentimes very subtly attacks the work of the Lord and tries to hinder it from going forward. And here's the way that I think it usually plays out. Here's Satan's subtle tactic. I think he does the same thing today with us that he did with them that he's always done. Sowing seeds of doubt through perceived delay of personal expectations. There's a lot in that definition and every part of it is important, okay? Sowing seeds of doubt through perceived delay of personal expectations. Here's the way this plays out. All right, God's told me to go over here and do this for him. He's given me a mission, he's given me a direction. I'm gonna go do this. And as I go, because I'm human, I start to get an idea in my head how that's gonna play out, right? I'm going to go here and this many people are going to respond and it's going to take this amount of time. And we start getting all these ideas about how we think he's going to fulfill the mission through us. And we have plans and we have ideas. and We have expectations of what that's going to look like. And then when God doesn't come down and meet our personal expectations in our timeline, we start to doubt that he's in it at all. All When he never guaranteed us any of that, he just said, go and I'll be with you, and we're going to do some cool things. And sometimes what Satan likes to do is he likes to to, to twist things just enough and to, to mess things up and to slow things down and to delay the process just enough to get us to start doubting that God is actually in it. And he challenges what God's trying to accomplish through his people. And we have to continue to walk faithfully As Saul and Barnabas did through the entire island and not stop, even when we're not seeing the fruit that we think we should be seeing. I know I've I've shared this story before, but it's just by far the best personal example that I have of this Satan's subtle attack and how it plays on us as Christians at times and and it's, all, it's relevant to the story of our church, which is always good, right? It's always good to remember where God has brought us from and what he's done in our church. And so, so I'll, I'll share this again. When Courtney and I, when we first moved back to St. Louis to start planting harvest um, in January of 2015, it, we we didn't we were starting from scratch. It was just us. We had the Dan and Jenny Friedman, which were good friends of ours from years back. They jumped on pretty quickly, thank the Lord. Um, and then slowly but surely, God just started adding people to the group, and we started sharing the vision, and from January to, say, May, we got up to, like, 30 or 35 adults They were saying, yeah, I'm committed to this. We're like, oh, God, you're going to do this, right? Like, we're trying to get 50 by July. We'll have 50 in July. We'll set a launch date for September. This is going to be awesome. Like, off to the, like, this was it. And we got to 30 or 35, and then everything just stalled out some people left for various reasons, some more people came and some people left and some people came and just kind of kept teeter-tottering back and forth. And we just got stuck at 30. And after about six or nine months of being just stuck at 30 people meeting in my basement or eventually in another church's basement, like, I was, I was starting to doubt. Like, Lord, are you really in this? Did I, did I hear you wrong? Like, this doesn't seem like it's working. I'm not, we're not seeing the fruit that we need to see to, to keep going here. And, and I had, you know, several people um, that were around me that were asking the same questions. Like, maybe we made a mistake. Is God, is God really in this? Maybe it's, time to, maybe it's time to quit and move on to something else. I had coaches and leadership in our, in our network of churches saying, I, I don't know if this is it. Maybe we need to, to shut this down and go do something else instead. And I remember personally for me, those just being some of the darkest days that I have ever experienced in ministry. I mean, just day after day, just crying out to the Lord, like, God, where are you? I was overwhelmed with frustration and doubt and fear. And I'll just be honest with you guys. I really, really, really wanted to quit. Like, God, anything would be easier than this. Like, you just tell me where to go. I'll, I'll do anything if I could stop doing this right now. And the Holy Spirit just said, no. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't quit. Just keep walking faithfully with me. And I'll take care of it. As much as I wanted to go do something else, he would not release our hearts, Courtney and I both, he would not release us from, this is where I called you, this is what you're meant to do. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't just us, man. We had those, the 30 people we did have were the most faithful people I have ever done ministry with. They just kept showing up week after week, working and serving and giving and I don't know why they kept coming. Like if I was them, I'd have been peace out if I was them. But like they just, like God had knit their hearts to this and they just kept walking faithfully even when the fruit wasn't there. And then eventually, obviously God came and he did what he said he was going to do. And The only reason that harvest exists today is because those 30 people kept walking faithfully even when it didn't look like God was in this even when Satan was trying to challenge it on every level. They just kept walking faithfully. That's what God calls us to do. That's what Saul and Barnabas did here. They didn't go to one or two cities and not see anybody get saved. Forget it, pack it up, we're going back to Antioch. They just kept walking faithfully all the way across Cyprus, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for us as a church, if we're going to continue to grow, if we're going to continue to be on mission, if we're going to continue to see God do great things, like we sang about earlier, in our church, in this community, we have to keep walking faithfully no matter what Satan throws at us. And he will. He will. And we have to keep walking faithfully. Being on mission means walking faithfully because my hope is in my God, not my results. We have to have our heart in the right place. We have to have our hope in the right place. It's not in what he does. It's in him. That he is God and he is true and he is faithful and he will do it if we will walk with him. So the first thing, when Satan is attacked subtly, walk faithfully. The second thing, look at verse 6. Let's pick back up there. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came up. Upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. That's just a funny statement right there. Um, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. That's the same guy as Barjesus. Barjesus Elimus, same guy, two names. Opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul was also called Paul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Point number two is this. When Satan attacks directly, stand firmly. Sometimes he attacks subtly, sometimes it's behind the scenes and in the shadows and we have to just kind of keep walking. But there are times where he comes and he attacks directly head on, no doubt about it. And in those moments, God's word tells us to stand, to stand firmly rooted in who Christ is. Let me show you that here. So they get to Paphos and this is kind of the the Roman government center of the region, right? This is kind of like the, the capital of this area of the Roman empire. And they, they encountered this guy named Bar Jesus, also named Elamus, um, who is a, a Jewish magician and false prophet, which is just a super ironic statement because Jews weren't allowed to practice magic, this type of magic, because it was, they knew it was not from the Lord. It was evil. It was dark. It was, it was not, not okay. And so this guy is a, a, a Jewish magician, which then by essence makes him a false prophet because he's not, um, hearing from the Lord. He's using other black uh, arts to do that. And, um, and it, somehow he worked or served the proconsul. Now, the proconsul is basically the governor of the region. So he's like the top dog in the area. His name is Sergius Paulus. And again, interestingly enough, Luke calls him a man of intelligence. It's kind of ironic since you're listening to a magician false prophet and you don't even know it. But nonetheless, he was an intelligent guy. He had a sense of wisdom and discernment. He had a hunger. I think it was really what Luke's trying to tell us here is he had a hunger for knowledge. He had a hunger for the truth. He wanted to know more. He wanted to know what it really was all about. And so he hears about Barnabas and Saul, and he calls them to hear the word of God. He says, come and preach to me. Tell me, tell me about this God of yours. Is the gospel true? That's the question that he was asking. Right? He knew that there was a God. He knew there was truth out there, and he's like, I think I have it, but if there's something I don't have, if there's something that's bigger than what I think, if there's something that's 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 the true authority in this world and I am not tied into that, I need to know it. There's something about that our our hearts, when they seek out the honest truth about what our world is, about what existence is all about, about what humanity is all about, it always leads back to this. When we get ourselves out of the way, when we get everything else, all the, the barriers that we think are important or that we think are true and we allow ourselves to just be honest at our root being that there's something bigger than us out there and we need to know what it is it always leads back to the gospel so he says i want to hear but elemas didn't like this right because he it says he opposed paul saul and Barnabas. he opposed um, the faith he tried to keep the proconsul from the faith primarily because at this point he's got him in his hand all right, Elmas has got the pro-council eating out of his hand. He's got the power. He's got the position. He, does, he doesn't want to lose his meal ticket, right, with the pro council. And he doesn't want to lose the authority that he has in this relationship. So he doesn't want anybody coming in and challenging that with a new gospel or new truth. And so it says he challenges. And then there's an interesting statement here I've got to deal with real quickly here. It says he challenged Saul, who was also named Paul, right? And so this is the point finally, at the book of Acts, where Saul starts going by Paul and will for the rest of Acts and pretty much all of the New Testament, right? Which is awesome because I always want to call him Paul and I have to correct myself when I'm in the first part of Acts. So, but what's interesting here is a lot of people think that Saul changed his name to Paul through some spiritual means, like when he got when Jesus he met Jesus on the road, Jesus gave him a new name, or when he got saved, he changed from Saul to Paul because that's like his new person and the faith, and no, that's not anywhere in the Bible. Um, most likely what's happening here is Saul actually probably had two names from birth. It was very common, especially for Jews that were born into Roman areas like Tarsus, where Paul's from, to have a Jewish name, Saul, and to have a Gentile or Roman name, in this case, Paul. And so when he's in the Jewish regions like Jerusalem and Judea, where he's been up to this point, he uses his Jewish name, Saul. Now that he's moving his ministry into more Gentile Roman regions, he starts going by the name Paul. So that's kind of the switch here and what's happening. But anyway, Saul Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to highlight that once again. We've talked about this a couple times throughout the book of Acts. But it's always interesting to me that there are a couple times throughout the book where Luke highlights... That somebody who is clearly already saved has already received, we we believe that you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. That's what the the Bible teaches, right? When you get saved, you get all the Holy Spirit. He comes and fills you. And as long as you're walking with Jesus, you always have him. He, He never leaves. He seals your salvation. But there are still times in the book of Acts where somebody who is clearly saved, like Paul, and already has all the Holy Spirit, it says that in this moment he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There are times in our lives where, although we have all of him, there are times where God gives us a special dose, an an extra dose of his power, of his presence, of of his strength, in order to do something for him in the mission. In this case, Saul's getting ready to go into a a major battle here with Satan attacking the gospel. And so he's filled with the Holy Spirit to deal with this. And so he looks intently at Bar-Jesus Elemis here, And he's getting ready to, I mean, he just stared, like just think about that, just just the the eye contact. He's just staring right into his eyes, bold, clear, truth, coming at you. He says, you son of the devil. Which is, again, super ironic because his name Bar-Jesus actually means son of Jesus. And Paul's like, no, 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 you ain't no son of Jesus. You, my friend, are son of the devil. He saw in this man a direct, clear attack of Satan through the use of this man that was mixed up in the dark magic and black arts of the time. This is always Satan's play. Elemis is worried he's going to lose his authority over the proconsul, and Satan has always been about authority. This is his biggest deal. What got him kicked out of heaven, right? He challenged the authority of God. He tried to take it for himself. What happened in the garden when he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve? He challenges God's authority. He says, oh, God didn't really say that and you'll be fine. Just eat the fruit anyways. Satan is always about trying to gain authority over your heart in your life. That is his biggest goal. He's trying to grab every little piece of authority that he can from the kingdom of God. And so when his authority is challenged, guess what he does? He lashes out, guns ablazing, blazing coming at you. Anytime you step out in faith, in mission, and you start to follow Jesus more, and you start to challenge the authority and the strongholds that he has in your life, he is going to come guns ablazing at you. That's what he does right here to Saul. So he calls him son of the devil, and he says, you enemy of righteousness. Literally, you enemy of God. You're full of deceit. You're full of villainy. You're, you're, you're a trickster. You're a con artist. This is all fake. You don't. You, none of this is real. And then he tacks on this. He says, why are you making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? There's an intentionality in that statement. This isn't just a guy who's mixed up. He doesn't just have the wrong information. He's not just ignorant of the truth. He's not just, he is intentionally, maliciously attacking the work of God for his own gain and for his own authority. And Saul, Paul, calls him out on it. And then he follows up and he says, The hand of the Lord is upon you. That statement right there is so important for us to understand when it comes to dealing with attacks from Satan. Notice Paul doesn't take this into his own hands. Paul doesn't attack him. He doesn't try to take him out or, or, you know, like Paul doesn't try to fight him himself. He says, no, 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 you, my friend, are up against the wrong guy and he is going to take care of you. He says, the Lord's hand is upon you and you're going to be blind for a time. God's wrath is coming and he's going to put you in your place. It wasn't Paul's job to exact vengeance. He left that with the Lord. This is what we need to know, guys. When Satan attacks, God does the fighting. All we have to do is stand. God doesn't call us to fight. He calls us to stand and let him do the fighting. Paul actually talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. If you've been around church very long, you're probably familiar with this passage. It's called the armor of God. And it talks about the armor of God as things like the, you know, the, the gospel of truth and, and prayer and the word and the Holy Spirit and all these things that we need to, to, to put into our lives so that we can walk in step with who God is. But notice what it says here in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to fight. Is that what your Bible says? No, no, no. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I've never heard a general in any army say, grab your guns, grab your gear, and go stand. Have you ever heard that? No, it's go fight. But God's army's different. He doesn't tell us to fight. He tells us to stand. To stand firm in who he is in the truth of the gospel and to let him fight the battle that we cannot fight, that we cannot win. We're not strong enough. It's not ours. It's his. And the greater steps of faith that you take out on mission the greater the attacks are going to come. And the greater attacks means the greater risk. And the greater risk means the greater reliance that we need on God to fight for us. So how do we do this? What's it look like as believers of Jesus Christ to stand firm? I see three things here from Paul's example. Let me lay them out for you. Number one, pray for help. The very first thing that Paul needed was to be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if he prayed for it or if God just gave it to him, but you and I, we need to pray for it. So when you see an attack of Satan coming at you, the first thing you need to do is pray for help. Spirit, fill me. Give me your power. Give me your presence. Give me what I need to get through this attack. Be filled with the Spirit through prayer. Number two, stand for truth whatever the situation, you don't have to fight, but you do have to stand. Pray, Spirit, speak through me. Give me the words, give me the thoughts, give me the ability to stand here in this onslaught of attack and stay grounded in the truth. In in Paul's case, this is somebody attacking them in words. Sometimes it's like that for us, but a lot of times it's other ways for us. It's that... It's that sin that you can't stop and it keeps coming at you and you're trying to just stand there and you need the truth of God's word in your heart and in your mind to say no to that and yes to Jesus. But you have to be able to stand and speak the truth of God's word into your own heart and into your own life. Sometimes it's the direct attack or challenge of, of that, that identity thing that you have. That I need this sport, or I need this drug, or I need this much money, or I need this much business power, or I need whatever I need to make me feel like I'm somebody and that I'm good. And your identity is rooted in all these things of the world, and Satan is using that to challenge you and to attack you. And you have to have the truth of God's word to stand and say, no, that does not make me who I am. Jesus makes me who I am. This is what it looks like to stand and speak truth. And when nobody else is around it to speak it to you, you have to be well enough equipped to speak it to yourself. Pray for help, stand for truth. And then number three, wait for the Lord. This is that prayer of spirit fight for me. I'm gonna stand here and I'm gonna keep reciting that verse, I'm going to keep saying that prayer, I'm going to tell myself the truth about this person or this relationship or this situation, but I need you to show up and finish the job. I'm going to stand, I'm going to stay here, I'm not moving, but at the end of the day, you've got to come and fight for me. You've got to take this out. And then wait and trust that God will do what he said he's going to do. One of the greatest examples that I've ever personally seen of this um, was actually with a senior pastor that I served under previously. Um, John was just one of the, the just one of the greatest shepherds of people that I've ever worked with. He loved his church dearly. He loved his people. He loved the 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 Word of God. He worked tirelessly for the church. Just a committed, committed man. But there were some other men um, in the church that had been there for a while, and um, they. They didn't like some of the direction that he was taking things. They didn't like some of his decisions. They didn't like some of what, what, what vision he was laying out for the church. And so they went on the offensive and they started to attack him and they started to attack his character and attack his decisions. And they were gossiping and they were slandering him in the church and outside the church. And they had these, they created these flyers that they started passing out to people with lists of lies and slanderous comments and just a, just attacking him and everybody, they were trying to get him out so they could get control of the church again and get it the way they wanted it. And me and a couple other guys who were on staff were associate pastors and we were like, John, we, we got to do something about it. We can't let this happen. Like we've got, we've got to defend this. We got we to gotta go go back and refute all these lies and get up on, on, on Sunday and tell the congregation like this isn't true and this is these men are, are in sin and they're gossiping and they're slandering. We, we got to call this out. We cannot let them win. And John said, thankfully, it was wise enough to say, no, it's not what we're going to do. That's not going to help. John understood this wasn't just a personal attack against him. This was a spiritual attack against what God had called him to do in that church. And so knowing that the battle was not ours, the battle was God's, he said, first of all, we're going to pray. In every staff meeting, we would pray we would pray for these men and we would pray for the church and we would pray for the situation and we would just pray that God would do something. And then we would stand and we would speak truth, but we, we didn't go on the offensive. We didn't demean these guys. We didn't try to attack them or, or we just, when somebody asked a question, when something came up, when a conversation was had, we would speak truth into it. We would tell the truth about what it is and what it isn't with a humble, gracious heart, but saying, this is what is really going on and correct it. And then we just waited on the Lord to sort it all out. Waited on him to come and sort this thing out for his good and for his glory and for the good of the church, and he did. Over time, their lies were exposed. Other members in the church started calling them out on the false accusations and all these things, and these divisive men left the church, and God continued to bless that church and use John and his ministry there to just continue to make disciples and do wonderful things in that community. John didn't back down from the mission that God had given him. He stood firm, but he also let the Lord fight the battle that only he could win. Saul and Barnabas here, they're doing the same thing. They don't back down from the mission. They keep preaching the gospel, man. They keep standing there in front of the proconsul and saying, no, thus saith the Lord. But they also let the Lord be the one who deals with Elemus here. They don't go into fight mode. They just stand. This is what we have to do. As we move forward, church, I'm, just, I'm not trying to be like doomsday guy today, but I'm just telling you, I've been around church long enough, I've been in this long enough to know that as we move forward in this next season of ministry, where God's getting ready to do, I believe some awesome things for his glory and for his name in the city, and with bringing people, lost people to salvation and discipling people, like, it's gonna be awesome, but that also means that Satan is going to attack And some of it is going to be directly either on this church or on you, God's people. And we need to know and we need to be ready and equipped to stand firm in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and weather whatever attacks he brings until God fights them off. Being on mission means standing firm in the spirit when my faith is under fire. Being on mission means standing firm in the faith, even, I'm sorry, staying firm in the spirit, even when my faith is under fire. Sometimes Satan attacks subtly, keep walking faithfully. Sometimes he attacks directly, and we need to stand firmly and let God fight. And then the last part, look at the second part, verse 11. It says, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That's Elemas. So he's blind now. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had... He's like, I don't, want, I don't want that happening to me. So he believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Point number three, when Satan attacks the mission, God brings the victory. When Satan attacks the mission, God brings the victory. So right here, Paul's speaking, and immediately mist and darkness falls on this guy. You can't see he's blind and people have to lead him by the hand. I'm not saying God always does it that way. God doesn't always deal with the attack right in the moment. Sometimes it's a longer process, but in the end, he does deal with it. He sends a clear message here to Satan, to Elmas, to everyone else around that God is in control. One of the things you need to understand is this. Satan does have power. Let's, let's, not, let's not discount what it is, okay? Satan has been given a a time and and, and on this earth to exercise his power for a certain amount of time. But all of that is still ultimately under the control of our God. The only reason Satan has anything is because God is allowing it for now. But there will come a day where that's no more. And God steps down and permanently crushes the head of the serpent. And it's done. And even now, right here in our lives, in our worlds, we're still having to fight against sin and fight against Satan and fight against all the. There's even victory now if we will trust the Lord and let him fight and win the victory for us. Just like he does here for Saul and Barnabas. When push comes to shove, God always wins. And so this happens, and then it says the procouncil believed. I think it's interesting. It says he believed because he was astonished at the teaching, which is kind of strange because it happens right after the whole, like, blind thing. But I think what we're seeing here is it's actually a both and. He had a front row seat for the, for the power of God on display. He saw the power of God in the miracle, in the, the blindness that was struck on Elemas, and then he also saw the power and the authority of God in the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the two of those things paired together, he was like, yeah, I'm in. And Saul and Barba's maybe have their first convert on the entire island. He just happens to be the governor of the whole place. That's pretty cool. Because he gets authority. You see, the gospel is actually all about authority. I know that we always present it this way, but go with me for a second. The same gospel that I share with you almost weekly, Saul and Paul are, and Barnabas are preaching and sharing with the pro-council here. And it's simply this, that all of us humans are sinners. That we are born with this need and this desire and this, this, this something inside our hearts that says, me, 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 I don't care what God says. I don't care what he wants. I want to do what I want. Forget you, forget your authority, and I'm going to rebel against God and do my own thing. And that rebellion, that sin separates us from God. It puts a chasm between us because he is holy and we are not. And we have no ability in and of ourselves to bridge that chasm, to get back to perfection, to get back to holiness because we have this rebellious, sinful, I don't want you having any authority in my life thing in our hearts. And God knew that and God loved us anyways. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come, to be a human, God in the flesh, and to live a perfect, sinless life. No one else has ever done that. And then he took that perfect life and he laid it on the altar as a sacrifice. He willingly went to the cross and died in our place as a substitute for our sins. He gave his perfect life to God for us and took all of our sins upon himself and he died and suffered the wrath of God in our place. And he went into the the tomb and three days later, he rose back to life to show that he was God, to show that he had power over sin and death and life and all of it and that he was the ultimate authority. That's why we worship him. That's why we give our lives to him. That's why we say yes to Jesus, not because he's a great guy who forgives me and gets me into heaven. All that's true. But ultimately we give our lives to Jesus because he deserves it, because he is the highest possible authority that we will ever come in contact with. It's an authority issue. Perfect life, no one's ever done that. Sacrificial death for me, for my sins, no one's ever done that. Raised back to life, power over sin and death. Nobody has done that. Only he has the power and authority to demand our worship and to send us out on mission. And the same power, the same authority that is true for Saul and Barnabas and the pro and all of the people in Acts is true for us today. The same gospel, the same power is present right here, right now, in harvest today. This is why we follow. This is why we worship. And so if all that's true, if he's calling us into something more, if he's calling us into mission and we're stepping out in faith and we're going through forward in his authority, guess what's coming? Challenges. Satan is not going to go without a fight. He's going to challenge it every step of the way. So I want to just kind of pull things together today with just maybe some specific, we'll call them predictions. I'm not a prophet. I'm not telling you what's going to happen. I'm just saying, I've seen this enough to know some ways that Satan's going to try and challenge us in the next couple of weeks and months as we step into this new season of ministry and mission. We need to prepare our hearts accordingly. The first thing is he's going to challenge our preferences. I kind of like my seat right here, and somebody else might sit in my seat, and that's not going to, like, talk about that last week, talked about parking spots, right? Like, we have some preferences, serving roles, you know. I've been serving in this ministry for two years now, and now we got new people coming in. They want to serve, and I'm not going to be able to serve as much, and I'm going to have to move around or do something different. And Some of you, it's going to be challenges, That it's going to be preferences that you don't even know you have until somebody steps on them. Some of you subconsciously, you don't know this about yourself yet, but some of you, you have this preference of a small church. I like people, I like a church of like 100 people where I kind of know everybody and I've got my relationships and it's all good and and I just want to kind of stay right there. I get that, but the problem is the mission is to multiply. I'm I'm not a math genius by any means, but I'm pretty sure multiply means that the number gets bigger and bigger. It's not going to stay at 100. And as God starts to grow us and make more disciples, that might challenge some of our preferences. Maybe it's a preference for services. There might come a day where we're not all in one service together anymore. Maybe it's two services so we can fit everybody in. Well, I like one service. I like like us all being a family too. I do too. But if God wants to make more disciples, I'm not going to get in the way. And all these preferential things, Satan would love to take those and turn them against you and to get you to start getting angry or upset or dissatisfied. And it's just easier to go somewhere else. And I'm done with this and I'm, you know, I'm out. And he would love to take those challenges and twist them and get you off mission with Jesus. So let's be aware of that. Let's be ready for that. Let's stand against that. Another area that I oftentimes, we'll oftentimes see Satan challenge he's going to challenge our resources. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I'm just going to touch it again. There's going to be a season coming up here where we're probably going to have to be being extra sacrificial in our giving in order to make all this work. And as soon as God starts asking us to sacrifice more and give more, guess what Satan's going to do? He's going to turn up the desires more, the temptations. Well, yeah, you could give that to the church, but you know, you've really been wanting that new car you've really been wanting to redo that bathroom in your house like what if you know i think you need to figure this this out i think that's more important over here and also we're going to start being tempted by things that we could put our money and resources towards even more so maybe than usual because satan's trying to challenge what god's calling us to do it might be a challenge of resources in terms of not desires but setbacks what if you don't get that promotion you thought you were going to get or maybe you even lose your job. Or something else financially pops up that you have to pay for at the house. And all of a sudden, you don't have as much money as you thought, and you said, all right, God, I'll give this much, but now I can't because I don't have as much, and so I have to keep more for this. And Satan's going to use those setbacks to challenge your faithfulness to the Lord and what he's told you to give. Or maybe might be something just as simple as delayed gratification. Maybe you've been saving up for the last two years, working hard, so you could put those wood floors in. Or you could upgrade the car, or you could go on that vacation you've been dreaming about. And you finally got the money saved up, and then God comes along and says, hey, you know that $2,000 you got there? Maybe that needs to go over here for mission. God, we've been working hard for this. We've been saving up for this. This is like our thing. And Satan would love to tell you, no, no, you deserve it. This is, that's your money, you've done the work, you've saved up, like you deserve, You should not have to give that. And he would love to take that challenge and turn it against you and get you to step outside of the mission and the faithfulness that God's calling you to do. Challenge our preferences, challenge our resources. And then the last one, I think probably the most important one, honestly, is gonna try to challenge our unity. This is the bedrock of what makes the church the family of God is that we are unified as one people in Christ. And when things start changing and we start going through this next season of ministry sometimes some things that you were expecting some expectations that you had for me or for the church or for the programs or for the small group they're not going to they're going to change. And we might go a slightly different direction. We might have a slightly different way that we do things. Things might change a little bit, and your expectations are going to get rocked, and then you're going to be like, well, I don't know if I like these people anymore. They're not doing it the way I thought they were going to do it. They're not doing it the way I want to do it. It's going to challenge those relationships, challenge your commitment to God's family. As new people start to come in, that's going to be more people means more relationships, means more time and attention that other people are needing and you might not get the same amount of time or attention from certain people that you're used to getting. And that might challenge some relationships and some unity. It breeds conflict. And if that conflict, it's, that's part of being human. But if we don't deal with it correctly, then it starts to erode the unity of God's church. And when those things happen, when our feelings get hurt when someone sins against us, when things aren't going the way we like, it's easy for us to think, you know what? There's 10 more churches in five miles from here. I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just go somewhere else where I don't have to be challenged, where I don't have to step out on mission, where I don't have to be, I can just be served and do what I want and and be happy and not have to worry about all this other stuff. I'm just gonna go there. And Satan would love to see you do that. He would love for you to say, you know what? This is too hard. I'm just going to go somewhere else where it's easier. And God's saying, no, no, no. I'm using this not just for the church, not just for the mission. I'm using this for you. I'm going to use this to do a work in your heart and I'm going to grow you and I'm going to stretch you and you're going to be more like Jesus on the other side of this hard thing that we're walking through. Because that's what God does if we walk faithfully and stand firmly and let God bring the victory to our lives and to our church. Satan will challenge us every step of the way. But I promise you, in the end, God will win. And when he does, I want to be standing there with him. And I think you do too. So we need to follow this. Being on mission means trusting the Lord to bring victory in the challenges. Not running away from them, not quitting on them, not taking the easy exit, standing, walking, trusting the Lord that he will bring the victory. When Satan challenges the mission, commit yourself to the Lord. You don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to fight all the battles. You don't, like, you just need to trust the Lord and keep going. The challenges are coming. God is calling us to something awesome and big steps of faith in the next thing, but that means challenges are coming and we need to prepare ourselves. We need to equip ourselves. We need to be ready to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about perseverance. It's about staying firm faithful. We know that we can stay faithful because we know that he always stays faithful. We can keep going because Jesus is unfailing every time. Let's stand. Let's pray together. We're going to worship our God and all that he is to us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for for the work that we do see you doing, Lord, for the mission that you're calling us to, for the ways that you are taking us into bigger and bigger steps of faith. Heavenly Father, you never, never fail us. And therefore, Lord, we can walk faithfully, we can stand firmly, we can trust you with the victory, God. Even in the midst of the attacks, even in the midst of the challenges, Lord, your power, your authority is bigger. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, Lord, we can trust you and you will bring victory to this. You will bring good, you will bring glory out of these things. Lord, help us to be ready. Prepare our hearts to stand against the attacks of the evil one. Lord, we pray right now for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us as we walk with you. We know you're with, we know that you are with us, Lord, and we trust you. pray all this in Christ's name.